Well, today I want to talk to you about the stones. And if you're from my generation, when you hear that name, you probably think of that famous rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones have been touring the globe for nearly half a century. But have you noticed this? They're getting pretty old. The Rolling Stones are getting ancient. Did you know that this July, Mick Jagger turned 67? 67. Time is no longer on his side. And it sort of got me thinking, you know, maybe the Stones need to rewrite some of their song titles to make their music more relevant to their aging band members. And so with a little work on this, I came up, and I've been on vacation the last couple of weeks, so I had to have something to do. And so I came up with the top ten suggestions for the senior Rolling Stones. Here they are right now. I can't get no satisfaction. That can be changed to, I can't get no circulation. Let's spend the night together. Now becomes, let's take a nap together. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. It's only Geritol, but I like it. How about this one? I want to be your man. Now becomes, I want your health care plan. Like a rolling stone. Now becomes like a kidney stone. That's more appropriate. Give me shelter. Give me a tax shelter. This is my favorite. Brown sugar. You remember that song? Brown sugar. Now it's brown Splenda. <laughs> Times are changing. Jumping Jack Flash is limping Jack Flash. Hot stuff now becomes hot flash. And then last but not least, you can't always get what you want. You remember that? You can't always get what you want. Well, for the aging Rolling Stones, it should be you can't always chew what you want. Well, excuse the diversion this morning, but that's not the stones that I want to talk to you about today. I'd like to discuss the living stones, not the rolling stones. Hey, the living stones are also a rock and roll band. We are a band of people founded on the rock, and we're always on a roll. We've been grouped together to make beautiful music for God. In fact, Peter will call us a temple of praise. The Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction, but nothing is more satisfying than being a living stone. Jesus has made you and me and all true Christians living stones. And we'll make music together for a lot longer than 50 years. The Living Stones tour goes on for all eternity. We start our study today here in chapter 2, verse 4, with some simple yet profound words. Notice this, Peter writes to us, Coming to Him. Coming to Jesus. This is what Christianity is all about. It's coming to Jesus. A Christian is a person with a new headquarters. Oh, we're out and about in the world, but we come home to Jesus. We interact with the world, but then we come home to Jesus. We do battle with the world. Certainly we do. But then we come home to Jesus. A Christian is always coming home. Coming to Him. Peter tells us. A Christian is a person with a new access point. Our lives spin around Jesus. He becomes our true north. All we are, all we have, where we're headed, 
revolves around Jesus. Coming to Jesus is now our way of life. And Peter makes three observations about Jesus that sort of set the pace for this new life. Notice he calls him a living stone, a cornerstone, and a stumbling stone. And we're going to see these in the next few verses. He notes first, coming to him as to a living stone. Now throughout the Bible, the Messiah is referred to as a rock, often as a mountain. Jesus is strong. He's steady. He's unbreakable. He is the bedrock of truth. He is a refuge from the storm. Jesus is a fortress that can withstand the enemy. He's even a missile sent from heaven that shatters the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is Stone Mountain tough. Went to Stone Mountain recently. Boy, always impressed with the strength of that rock. Jesus, too, is deep and large, and granite-like. He rises above the horizon as a reference point, but oh, he's durable as a foundation. And yet, have you noticed that it's hard to warm up or cuddle up to a rock? That's why Peter calls Jesus a living stone. Oh yes, he's tough, but he's tender. He looms large, but he loves deeply. Jesus, you could say, is a warm-blooded rock. With Jesus, you're never between a rock and a hard place. Jesus is a soft spot in a hard, cold world. Only in coming to him can we find peace and rest. Well, Jesus is a living stone, but Peter tells us more about him. The Christ was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You know, there was a legend associated with the Old Testament temple, with Solomon's temple. During its construction, the cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on site, the builders didn't recognize its strategic importance. It was different from the other stones. They considered it to be an oddity, and they tossed it aside. That is, until the cornerstone was needed. And that's when the builders realized their mistake. They raced to retrieve the precious stone that they had rejected. And this is an illustration of how the builders of Judaism treated Jesus. They didn't realize that he was the chief cornerstone. That he was the keystone of all that God would build. Jesus was so different from them. He was so different from what they expected. They rejected God's cornerstone and tossed Jesus out of their temple. But what the Jews rejected is still precious and valuable to God. And Peter says that one day, still future, they'll realize their mistake. The Jews will repent and turn from their sin. And they too will come to Jesus and receive him as God's chosen. Jesus is the living stone. But notice verse 5. It takes it a step further. It says, but you also as living stones. Isn't this interesting? Jesus is the living stone, but we're, I guess you could say, chips off the old block. We also are living stones. We take after Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, but you and I are living stones. We're alive with the life of Christ. He breathes and He loves and He cares and He moves through us. And His Holy Spirit makes us strong. In Christ, we're solid, a solid rock. Like Jesus, we're all living stones. And Peter says that the stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Notice that. What is a spiritual house? It's a temple. 
God is into temple building. Now, the construction industry here in Atlanta might be on the skids, but God has been into construction for a long time. And He's turning you and me and every believer into a temple of praise to Him. You remember the Old Testament temple? It was a tangible building that stood there on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But the New Testament temple is a spiritual house made up of living stones. You and I are being joined together as a house for God. That's incredible. You see, the church is not the building. The church is the people. We are the building materials. We're the stones that are being assembled on site. God is fitting us together as a house for Him. You know, the transforming power of Jesus sobers us. In fact, some of you have gone from being stoned to being stones. Faith in Jesus makes us spiritually alive. The Jewish temple had limestone walls. The temple Jesus is building has live stone walls. Each of us has a place in His church. This is why I say, don't you be off the wall. You need to find your place on the wall. Here's your opportunity to join the band. In Christ, we're all a living stone. And we have a role in this spiritual temple that God intends to construct. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this analogy of being living stones in a temple for God reminds us of the construction of Solomon's temple. The Bible tells us that the stones in that Old Testament temple, that they were quarried off-site. If you go to Jerusalem with us, you can actually see the quarry. It's just north of the old city walls of Jerusalem. The stones were cut and they were chiseled and they were fitted at the quarry so that they could easily be assembled on site. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7 tells us the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. You see, the temple was a place of peace and solitude and reverence and worship. It wasn't your typical construction site. You see, God didn't want the halls of the temple to be filled with the noise of banging and sawing. And so he had the stones chiseled and fashioned and shaped and fitted together at the quarry. Once the stones were custom fitted, then they were delivered to the temple mount and they were assembled according to plan. You know, you and I are like those ancient stones. And the work of making us fit and then fitting us together is what God is doing in the world today. Here's what we need to remember. The world we live in is the quarry. Never forget that. Heaven is the temple. This is the quarry. And the temple is a place of peace and reverence and worship. There are no construction noises going on in heaven. You and I will never hear banging and clanging and drilling and sawing in heaven. That's what happens in this life. You see, when you get banged around, and when you get drilled on, and when you get chiseled away, and when you get chopped off, and you get whittled down to size, that's what's supposed to be happening in this life. We live in the quarry. This life is a construction zone. Don't be surprised when your rough edges get sanded down. That's what God wants to do in this life. Don't be surprised when your ends get leveled or your jagged exterior gets broken off. 
It's loud and noisy and dusty and chaotic in the quarry. But that's where the important work gets done. And you see, this is where our cooperation is necessary. You know, the difference between living stones and and limestone is that living stones have a mind of their own. They can jump up when they think the cutting is too severe. They can run when the chiseling gets uncomfortable. You see, we can thwart God's work by trying to escape the pick or dodge the drill. This is often what happens when a person changes jobs. Or they leave a church. Or they avoid a friendship. God is using a particular situation to quarry us. He's carving and shaping and piecing us together. But we need to cooperate. Always remember, heaven doesn't start until we get to heaven. There was a a young, innocent girl last night at the graduation who kept trying to compare Athens to heaven. Well, I've been to Athens several times now. Trust me, it's not heaven. If Athens is heaven, we're all going to get really disappointed when we get to heaven. Hey, hey, heaven doesn't start until you get to heaven. Right now, God is working on you in the quarry. He's building a temple of praise by fitting us together. And only when he's done will he ship us off to heaven where he'll, be, where he'll occupy the temple for all eternity. Now, Peter calls us a living stone. But notice also he calls us a holy priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi served as priests. The priesthood had a dress code. You had to have Levi jeans to be a priest. That's an old joke, but you keep laughing, so I'll keep telling it. You see, the priests were the go-betweens. You represented, the priests represented God to the people and then represented the people to God. But in the New Testament, understand this. Every believer has become a priest. We are a holy priesthood. We no longer need another human being to get to God. God has cut out the middleman. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 teaches us there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. You no longer need a third party, an operator, a server to log on to in order to get to God. You have your own access. You are a holy priesthood. I don't think most Christians really understand the revolutionary implications of this concept. For centuries, Roman Catholicism oppressed its members, dominated its people's lives through the priesthood. Common people didn't dare read their Bibles because the church taught that they couldn't understand it without the assistance of a priest. In fact, they made it a sin to even try. The priest told you what you wanted to think and how you were supposed to live. It all came through the priest. The problem, though, is rather than a mediator, the priest became a barrier between God and the people. He barred them from truth and freedom and from the grace that's so freely given through Christ. You see, more than any other doctrine, the priesthood of every believer became the fire that lit the Reformation. This truth is what sparked Western democracy. You see, here was the thinking. If priest and parishioner and prince are all equal before God, if every man is his own priest, then every person should have an equal vote. 
an equal rights and an equal voice and an equal opportunity to worship God as He pleases. This doctrine, the priesthood of every believer, was the catalyst that brought us out of the dark ages and changed Western civilization forever. If you love freedom, then you have a debt of gratitude this morning to Christianity. And let me too champion this doctrine today. For as Christians, we all are a holy priesthood. You know, this means that I have no justification to try to force my opinion or my prejudices on you. Nor do you have any right to try to force your opinions on me. Certainly, it's a given that we're all under the clear teaching of Scripture. But when I see prideful church leaders with inflated views of themselves pressing their opinions on other people as if they were the words of God, it upsets me. It's wrong for one Christian to claim a closer connection to God than another Christian. For we are all made complete, not through our own works or efforts, but through Christ. And then for a Christian to presume to explain God's will for that other person, that's pretty pompous. Hey, I have a hard enough time discerning God's will for my own life, let alone take responsibility for uncovering God's will for you. Every believer is his own priest. It's up to you to listen to God and you to discern his will and then to obey it. And you know, we have all the help that we need in this. The Bible and the Holy Spirit are both at our disposal and God is faithful to personally interact with each one of us. Well, as a priest, we also have a job to do. Notice this. Peter says that the duty of a priest is, quote, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament priests, they offered animal sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats flowed from the altar. Whereas New Testament priests, they offer up spiritual sacrifices. Did you know that as a New Testament priest, I can give five offerings to God. You want to write these down. You can sacrifice self, souls, stuff, song, and service. Self, souls, stuff, song, and service. These are spiritual sacrifices, New Testament sacrifices. And I'm going to give them to you again. I'm going to back them up with a couple of verses. Romans 12, verse 1 places self on the altar. You remember this verse. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. God wants you to give yourself to Him. Your body and your mind. Go where God says go. Do what God says do. Think what and how God says think. Place yourself on the altar. Living stones are to become living sacrifices. Romans 15 verse 6 tells us that we can offer up souls as a sacrifice. Paul refers to the people that he had influenced, that he had won to Christ as, quote, the offering of the Gentiles. When you lead a person to Jesus, this is also an acceptable sacrifice. In Philippians 4 verse 18, Paul speaks of the stuff the monetary support that had been sent to him from the Philippians, and he calls this, too, an acceptable sacrifice. See, this is another way that you can give to God a sacrifice. You give him an offering. You take your stuff, and you stuff it in the offering box. Now, you've probably got a wallet that's made out of cowhide 
or sheepskin. I mean, think about this. The hard work's already been done. The animal's already been sacrificed. And you've been stuffing money in this wallet for years. Now you just need to take some out and stuff it in the offering box. When you do, God sees that as a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to Him. As a priest, it's our duty to offer a regular sacrifice. Hebrews 13 verse 15 also tells us that songs are another way to sacrifice to God. The author of Hebrews refers to our worship as, quote, the sacrifice of praise. I like that. Now, here's the deal. When Marvin leads us in song on Sunday morning, God equates what comes out of my mouth as a sacrifice. Not because my singing sounds like a bleeding lamb in the throes of death, though it does. In fact, God has actually trained his ear, believe it or not, to hear my singing as a joyful noise. But God appreciates the effort, man. Raise your hands, lift your voice, focus your attention heavenward. And God knows you mean well. He sees that as thanks. He knows that you love him. Praise is a sacrifice, as is service. In fact, the very next verse there in Hebrews 13, verse 16 tells us, Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. An encouraging word. Something as simple as a good deed or a random act of kindness to another person is seen in heaven as pleasing to God. You see, as priests, our job is to sacrifice self and souls and stuff and song and service. Peter tells us to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And then he writes this in verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. And then he quotes several Old Testament passages. First, Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Notice this. Jesus is a living stone, but he's also a cornerstone. In fact, he's the chief cornerstone. Now, when you visit the countrysides of England and Europe, you'll find some very, very old stone churches. Christians have met in these churches for a thousand years. And when you build a rock church, you intend to build something that's going to last a long, long time. This is why it's important that you build it on a solid foundation, on a solid cornerstone. The keystone is the rock on which all the others lean. It's the linchpin. Pull out that cornerstone, man, and the whole structure topples like a house of cards. And this is what characterizes a Christian. A true believer has built his or her life on Jesus. They've made Jesus their cornerstone. Everything in their life rests and leans on Jesus. Now, lots of people like the idea of looking religious. They think it's cool. And so they like to tip their hat to Christianity from time to time. And so they make Jesus a brick in their house. He just fits snugly into one of the walls. Not much really depends on him. In fact, they can ignore him when it's convenient. They can even pull him out of his slot for a time and nothing much in their life changes. Nothing much, you know, there's no big fallout from that. Nothing really rests on his involvement. But I got to tell you this morning, 
Jesus is more than just a brick in the house. Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything in my life should revolve around Jesus. How I do work in finances, in sex, in friends, in decisions, in gender, in dating, in marriage, in parenting, in leisure. Everything in my life needs to be influenced and interrelated to Jesus. He is the cornerstone. You see, if, if he's not your cornerstone, you don't understand Jesus. And you're not enjoying the stability that he brings. This morning, perhaps your finances are unraveling. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Perhaps your job is in jeopardy. Well, Peter writes this, He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. As we've mentioned before, life is a test. Life is only a test. But your life only passes the test if it's resting on Jesus. Believe on Him. Rest everything on Jesus. Build a life on Jesus and you will not be put to shame. Peter promises it. And then he continues, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. Isn't that true? If Jesus is your cornerstone, you you realize His value. If he's just another brick in the, in the wall, your love will vacillate. It'll grow hot and cold. But if Jesus is the, the stone on which your life is built, you'll know he matters most. He'll be precious to you. No sacrifice will be too steep to express your love for him. Peter writes in verse 7, But to those who are disobedient, and then he quotes two Psalms. First Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then second, Psalm 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's what Peter's doing. Here's his point. People who disobey God are going to find Jesus as an offense. You see, there are a lot of folks these days that claim to love God. But a person's allegiance to God boils down to their attitude toward Jesus, God's Son. The Jews rejected Jesus in the name of God, by the way. But they were tossing aside God's keystone. The early church was more opportunistic. They embraced Jesus as their cornerstone. Today, Jesus is our foundation. Well, Peter goes on to speak of those who reject Jesus. He says, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And we all have an appointment with Jesus. I hope you realize this. That one day you're going to meet him face to face. You see, here's what needs to be said to some of you today. Jesus is the rock who will not go away. Jesus keeps popping up from time to time. You know, you know every... Either you let Jesus be your cornerstone or he'll become your stumbling stone. You need to bow down to him or he's going to break a few toes, one or the other. Jesus is too big. He's too vital to be ignored or to be simply shoved aside. He loves you enough to keep popping up right in the road. He is the stone in your shoe that interrupts your pace. He convicts us. He chafes at us. Until we surrender to him. Hey, Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. It's up to you. Now, going into the final round of the 2003 PGA Championship, at the top of the leaderboard stood an unknown golfer by the name of Sean McHale. 
At the time, Sean was ranked 169th on the list of PGA golfers. All of a sudden, he's on the top of the leaderboard. And the Sunday headline of the local newspaper read this. Who is this guy? Hey, did you know that one day that's what the world is going to ask about us? The stones? Hey, well, we're not as famous as the Rolling Stones, but living stones are a different story. Hey, when we appear with Jesus in all of his glory, people will be asking, who are those guys? Oh, they'll recognize Jesus for sure. But, but who are the unknowns with him? Who are all those no-namers standing there with Jesus? Though your friends and your neighbors might not recognize it now, Peter goes on and he tells us that we're a special people. We're a very important people. Believe it or not, our names are at the top of God's leaderboard, and it's all by virtue of what Jesus has done for us. In fact, in these next two verses, Peter explains who we really are in Christ, and this needs to get you excited. In verse 9, he tells us, but you are a chosen generation. You know, you know, people today are often categorized by the generation in which they're born. You know, you're a builder, or you're a baby boomer, or you're a buster, or you're the member of Generation X, or Generation Z, or you're a millennial. Well, none of you are millennials. They're in the nursery this morning. But understand, none of these generational titles, it means nothing to God. For He has but one chosen generation. And membership is not predicated on when you were born, but if you've been born again. It's not about birthday, but new birth. The group that matters to God is not builders or boomers or busters, but believers. God's chosen generation is the regenerate. If God's Spirit has generated spiritual life in you, if something came alive in you the day you met Jesus, you're a member, my friend, of a new generation. You're now the hope of the future. And it doesn't matter if you're 9 or if you're 90. You're God's new generation. That's supposed to challenge and freshen and shake up the status quo. Every generation makes its mark for better or for worse on the world. We've been called by God to leave this world a different place. We're a chosen generation. And notice also, we're a royal priesthood. Notice these words. Strange combination. Royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, there was no such thing. Ancient Israel observed a separation between church and state. The priests came from the tribe of Levi, whereas the kings came from the tribe of Judah. But we are a combination. We're God's royal priesthood. We're both a king and a priest. Last night at the graduation, they kept saying, President Adams, President Adams, President Adams. I turned to my kids and I said, that sounds good for me. Just start calling me President Adams. I kind of like the ring of that. Well, hey, I'm more important than a president. I'm a king and a priest. I'm a royal priesthood. One day soon... We'll reign and rule with Jesus. He's coming back to right all wrongs and to establish His kingdom on this planet. And if you've been faithful to Him in this life, you have a part to play in the world to come. You're going to reign and rule with Jesus. But today, we're priests. See, we're standing in the gap between people and God. We're teaching God's Word. We're representing God to man. And for me, hey, here's a reason to get out of bed every morning. If you're looking for an incentive this morning to fight the traffic, here it is. 
Everywhere you go, you are a divine diplomat. You represent the living Lord Jesus to dying people. You, my friend, are in a position to take the hand of man and put it into the hand of God. I can't think of a higher calling. But a royal priest is not all we are. We're also told we're a holy nation. You've got to understand this. Before any of us came to Jesus, we were black and white and yellow and red. We were African and Asian and Anglo and Latino. We were a diverse people. I said it often. You could never get the group of people that are in this room together without knowing Jesus, without a fight breaking out. If you'd ever tried before they came to know Jesus. Hey, In Christ, we have a commonality that now transcends all of our differences. We've gained a new ethnic and national identity. We're a holy nation. Think about this. We've got a common homeland, heaven. We've got a common bloodline, the blood of Jesus that flows through us. We have a common policy plank in all we do. We want Jesus glorified. How can we divide over trivialities? And yet that's what we do. That's what we tend to do. We polarize. We get our focus off of our spiritual, eternal identity, and we rally around superficial distinctions. And it's tragic. I I mean, just just a Saturday passed, and suddenly we're Georgia Bulldogs and Florida Gators. We're Democrats and Republicans. We're Pepsi drinkers and Coke drinkers. We're Mac users and PC users. It doesn't take much to knock us off stride. Hopefully, when the chips are down, we'll all remember that we have a higher calling and a stronger devotion. We're citizens of heaven. No matter what else you happen to be today, black, white, legal, illegal, male, female, your first allegiance is to a holy nation. And then we're also God's own special people. When God saved us, He did it because He loved us individually, true, But God also has plans for us corporately. He's birthed a new social category. Hey, we are God's peeps. We embody His nature. We live out His values. You know, know, if you wanted to know what life was like in Cuba, you wouldn't have to travel there. You could go to Miami. For there's a neighborhood down in Miami known as Little Havana. Cuban immigrants there, they look and they speak and they act and they dress like people in Cuba. It's kind of like a mini Cuba. But this is similar to the role that the church is supposed to play in culture. If someone wants to know what heaven is like, all they should have to do is walk into a local church. God wants us to be an outpost of heaven right here on earth. God wants you to be able to sample heaven by walking into Calvary Chapel. Wow, how they love each other there. How their praises were so sincere. They had such a concern for the truth. They had such compassion for people. The healing and the strength and the help I found. Man, it just felt like heaven when I was there. I got to tell you, this is why I believe in the church. This is why the church is so strategic. This is why you should pray for your church and give to your church and serve in your church and be at your church. Church is a big deal, man. The gathering each week, this gathering each week is as close as some people are ever going to get to experiencing heaven. 
And this is why we need to make it count. I can't think of a bigger, a higher ambition than to provide this community a little taste of heaven week after week. We are God's own special people. And then Peter sums up the purpose of the church here in verse 10. He says that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Check this out now. We've gone from not a people to a people, the people of God. That's quite a transformation. Did you know you can purchase a purebred puppy? Comes with at least three generations ancestry. Do you know what that'll cost you? About $1,500. Now, I can't imagine paying $1,500 for a dog, but people do it. Whereas you can adopt a mutt at the animal shelter. will cost you a few bucks. Some of you soft hearts would do it too, wouldn't you? But notice this, the dog's value is determined by its pedigree. And this is what Peter is saying about us. We have gone from being a bunch of spiritual mongrels, spiritual mutts, to now we are spiritual purebreds. We've been born of God. We have His blood flowing through us. We have His Spirit living in us. We have a spiritual pedigree. Now some of you have never really had a place to truly call home until now. Until right now, through Jesus, you've made your way home. In coming to Him, you've come home. He's now home base. And you have obtained mercy, Peter says. Judgment was stayed off by God's mercy in your case. Jesus loves you with a love you don't deserve. And this is why we all need to be proud of who we are in Christ. This is why we need to rejoice that we are part of a temple built to praise God. Let me close close this morning with an old expression. You ever heard the expression? A rolling stone gathers no moss. Ever heard that expression? But a rolling stone, a person with no identity, no ties to anything greater than themselves, they also become a lonely and a secluded and a miserable person. That's why I'm glad I'm a living stone, not a rolling stone. And if you are alive in Christ today, you too have joined the band. Welcome, my friend, because you also are a living stone. Father, we.